turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. That's E-N-S-C-A-P-E-3-D.com. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. In this episode of Unstruct, I sit down with Dennis Blount, an associate principal with Arab in Seattle, Washington. Dennis is an acoustical engineer audiovisual specialist and theater consultant. He recently provided support for the Amazon Spheres Understory project. So the Amazon Spheres is a series of spherical shaped buildings that opened in January 2018. They are part of the Amazon campus and intended for a workplace for employees of Amazon. And they really focus on biophilic design with almost 40,000 plants throughout. It does really feel like you're at a botanical garden when you're in this structure. I had the opportunity to pop in a couple of months ago and take a look at the understory project and got a peek of kind of what was going on upstairs too. But the understory is kind of the base level of the sphere. So if you think of a slice through the bottom of a sphere, the floor plate is circular with steel and glass being kind of the walls, I guess, starting the bottom of the sphere and then a concrete slab. So from an acoustical standpoint, you can see how this might be a little challenging. So it was a lot of fun to sit down with Dennis and kind of talk through this and talk through ways that Arab does kind of virtual modeling of acoustical conditions to kind of replicate what's going to happen once it gets built. So super fascinating stuff. Lots of fun. Also super cool to talk to Dennis. He's an expert in the field of acoustical engineering and interesting to kind of get that overlap or talk about the intersection of structural engineering and acoustical engineering and how we can help out each other to kind of come up with a product that serves both of our needs. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dennis. Dennis, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe if we could just start a little bit, if you could maybe give a little context as far as your job function, what your area of expertise is in the acoustics and audiovisual world. Sure. Yeah, I'm an acoustic and AV consultant for a company called Arup. We're a global sustainable development and engineering firm. I sit in our Seattle office. I studied sound engineering as my background, and really my work is kind of at the intersection of acoustics and technology and architectural design. So my day-to-day is collaborating with architects and engineers, all things in the built environment. So yeah, everything sound, technology. 
stuff like that. Awesome. That's so cool. So today we're going to focus on the Amazon Spheres, which is a project in the Seattle area, something that you, the Arab, that you guys did some consulting on for that. So if you could maybe just give a little backstory as to the project. So I think specifically we'll be talking about the understory, which is kind of the ground level of the Amazon Spheres. So can you give us just a little context for that project? Yeah, and thanks for making the distinction between the the spheres, which is an amazing project that Arab had some involvement, but didn't do the structural engineering or anything I'm going to talk about today, in contrast to the understory, which was basically a fit-out project. And it's it's really cool. It's it's this exhibition space. It's underneath those iconic Amazon spheres here in Seattle. The understory, it's it's an Amazon-owned and operated venue. And it's open to the public. People can come in and learn about the plants and the architecture of the spheres above and kind of more broadly about the connections between biophilic art and technology, engineering and design. So all kind of all things that I'm personally passionate about. So cool. So when were you brought in on this project? We were contacted back in February of 2017 by our friends at Grand Baba Architects who led the design of the understory project and Graham Bob or GBA. They're longtime collaborators of ours. They're wonderful designers, they're lovely people, and they tend to come to us with their most technically complex and challenging projects. Okay. So at that point was the spheres project. So the more superstructure above the understory was the main structure already completed or was the understory always something that was envisioned for the space? The lower levels were always envisioned as kind of, I'll call them retail, whatever that means. So the programming was unclear. The spheres were definitely well into construction, if not complete. So the ground level retail spaces were all just shelled out spaces. Okay. And so the function of this space of the understory, it varies, right? From time to time, as far as like the exhibitors in there, they switch out, right? And so how did that affect what you needed to do from an acoustical sense? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll take a step back and say that when we were just starting on the project, it was just in the concept design phase. So a lot of the questions around programming and how the space was going to be used was still being fleshed out. And so, yeah, we were brought in for acoustics, AV, some structural and mechanical electrical plumbing engineering to help try to define project requirements as well as, you know, design those systems on the basis of those requirements. And so I personally, you know, I led the acoustic an AV design for the understory space, as well as actually there, there's some adjacent spaces, including a, a speakeasy bar and a restaurant. And really that was, that was the first step of the process was helping clarify, crystallize, and prioritize the different usage scenarios, which to answer your question at the highest level is exhibition space by day and event space by night. Okay. So how does that vary from an acoustical sense? That is a good question. I mean, that was one of the challenges. So as we got further into the programming effort, what we determined during, by the end of the programming effort, is that they wanted to do everything from acoustic performances to cocktail parties to exhibitions. And so that that really means there's this wide variety of usage, 
which kind of begs the question of what is the right acoustic to design for this space? And so we had a lot of back and forth on that early on to determine should the acoustics be adjustable or should we maybe take a more static approach and just try to design towards the middle of the overlapping Venn diagram for all these spaces. Okay. And so where did you arrive at then? Something in the middle? Well, we definitely explored different ways to adjust the acoustics. And so, but at the end of the day, I think the project team opted for designing kind of a quiet, neutral palette that works reasonably well for all the different use types. And there is some adjustability built into the project. Kind of, for example, I don't know if you can picture this, but the space itself is basically the bottom slice of a sphere. And so it's got these kind of circular curved nature to it, which from acoustic design perspective can be pretty challenging, right? Because that can focus sound towards the middle of the space, which can either create these acoustic hotspots or create these problematic reflections, which can degrade speech intelligibility or have kind of a strange echoey sense to them. And so that was one of the things acoustically we studied very early on by doing these kind of cool ray trace animations where we could stick sound sources and stage locations at different parts and do like a, a sound burst where the rays emanate out and bounce off the surfaces. And it was cool because those ray trace animations clearly showed the sound focusing towards the middle of the space. And so part of the acoustic design was addressing or trying to counteract that circular nature. And so we did things like have some angled walls to help break up that sound a little bit. And then the other piece was designing in some accommodation in the ceiling so that the users could hang sound absorbing drapery. And so that was one way to help address any problematic reflections on an ad hoc basis, but also provide a bit of a variability to the space so that they could liven it up by taking curtains down when they needed or deaden it by adding them when it was needed. Gotcha. Okay, so just the design behind acoustic engineering can be rather complex. So how were you able to take these complex concepts? And I think you maybe alluded to it a little bit with kind of these run-throughs or whatever, but how were you able to take these super complex concepts and convey them to your client? Yeah, good question. You know, I think part of it is just the upfront analysis and like some of these visual animations that I think are can be elucidated and understood by anybody. But for this project, because there are these inherent challenges to the space and geometry and this wide range of programming, we decided pretty early on that we needed to virtually mock up the acoustics of the understory for demonstration to the project team. And that's because we really needed the client to understand their options relative to associated costs, right? And, you know, acoustics is intangible and invisible and kind of esoteric and hard to understand, kind of hard to talk about. And so just listening is the best way to experience the acoustics of any space. And so we basically hosted the entire project team in our office in Seattle. And we brought them into a version of the Arab Sound Lab we had at the time, which is this scaled down mobile version called the M Lab. And so for maybe some listeners that aren't aware, the Arab Sound Lab is a, a technology we pioneered about 20 years ago, and it's essentially this calibrated 3D listening environment that we can sonically render the acoustics of spaces before they're built. 
And so that allows owners to not have to worry about all the acoustic jargon or ratings or the alphabet soup of, of acoustic metrics and just listen for themselves. And so that's, that's exactly what we did. They came in, they listened to a number of scenarios for the room acoustic treatment options. There are some interesting sound isolation challenges between some of the spaces and even some mechanical background noise level options that they had. And so once they actually just listened to the options, the answer was clear to them. They made a decision on the spot and we proceeded from there. That's cool. How awesome that they were able to actually experience that as well in a virtual environment, just to kind of, to get a feel for what it was going to be like, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think acoustics can be very difficult to understand and and talk about. And I think even acousticians struggle with really understanding, you know, the differences in our subjective opinion or experience from charts and graphs on paper. So listening is by far the best way to, mm-hmm. to design. Well, there's the charts and graphs on paper, but then there's also like the the user listening, right? Like everyone's ears are different, right? Everyone hears things differently. And that's that's a little more subjective, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. There's an art and a science to acoustics. There's certainly subjectivity. What's annoying to one person might be totally fine to another. And I, I think that's that's one of the reasons we, we have the sound lab and we get so much value out of it is because you can bring multiple people in. They can all listen together and you can build consensus over what's appropriate as opposed to the take my word for it on the acoustician approach of the past. One other thing that you mentioned was the acoustic panels, the special acoustic panels for, I believe, at the ceiling of the understory. And I think based on what we were talking about earlier, the structure was already in place, right? Did you have like special requirements or stipulations as far as weights of these materials? Like, was that a challenge at all? Or was the existing structure kind of already accommodating for those loads? The existing structure was certainly robust. You know, it's holding up massive trees and plants and soil. And so I think, yeah, there were never really any concerns around the structural integrity or the weights that we had talked about adding. Really, I think the challenge was more to do with, you know, the fact that there are these biodomes above means there's all these horticulture and MEP services that are running through the understory space to serve the spheres above. And so that creates a number of what I'll call design opportunities <laughs> that <laughs> we all got to design around. And that was an early focus of Grand Baba's work. And they really explored a number of different, really cool nature-inspired ceiling cloud concepts that, one, were visually interesting and brought a lot of life to the space, but also were able to kind of capture and hide some of those, not not only the existing services serving the spheres above, but also the services that were added as part of the fit-out work. That was one of the really fun parts of the process is looking at all these, you know, almost fractal-like patterns that are found in nature extrapolated out to ceiling clouds. And, you know, from an acoustics and AV perspective, we were able to help shape that ceiling cloud design by one, by integrating some of the AV technology into it. So there's AV connectivity. There are some flush-mounted loudspeakers in these hexagonal, I think it's Baltic birch wood. But we also needed to make sure the ceiling clouds were acoustically transparent to let sound through so that it could be absorbed by the sound-absorbing material sprayed to the underside of the structure above. And so the gaps are all carefully designed and the size of the panels are carefully specified 
so that they're essentially acoustically transparent. Okay, that was going to be my next question. How do you make something acoustically transparent? But I think you kind of touched on that a little bit. So with the gaps, right? Yeah, there, there's other ways. I mean, we discussed more of a, a perforated metal that lets sound through it, or you can do acoustically transparent fabrics. But at the end of the day, I think visually the wood really wanted to just look solid and true to form. So we decided to leverage the gaps in between the panels instead. Okay. So, I mean, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but the fact that the, you know, a slice through a sphere. So that base story is essentially round and not only that, so that's difficult from an acoustic standpoint, but then the materials, there's so many smooth materials, right? So the exterior glazing is all glass structure is steel and like concrete floor too. Right. So, I mean, was that a challenge with all of these, you know, smooth materials, I guess, that were super great at bouncing sound off of them. Yeah, that was certainly kind of one of those fundamental challenges at the start is, one, how do you address the problematic reflections, which I kind of already touched on, and two, how do you get enough absorption in the space to make it comfortable and neutral so that, you know, sound reproduction is of a high quality, it's a key part of the exhibit component and how it's comfortable and, and you know quiet even during high occupancy conditions. So we used we ended up using a very high efficiency, low cost spray applied material to the underside of the deck, the slab above. And it kind of disappears behind the ceiling clouds and the technical grid of lighting. I mean it's all blacked out, but it works really well. And so the space turned out kind of exactly like we experienced it in the sound lab and is very comfortable and neutral. So cool. I feel like this is a great test run for the Sound Lab too. I know it's been around for 20 years. You probably have a lot of, you know, projects that you've tested in the Sound Lab, but what a testament to it. The fact that what you did in the virtual world ended up being very similar to the real world. Yeah, that's that's definitely the goal. And so, you know, it's it's 20 years of a feedback cycle where you you model, you predict, you oralize, you listen, you build, you measure. And then each iteration through that feedback loop, you kind of get better and better at it. That's so cool. So I was going to ask you if anything came up unexpected during your design, (laughs) but with the sound lab, I don't know, (laughs) but I guess I'll still ask the question. Yeah, there's always unexpected things. I mean, you know, the exhibit design piece was run in parallel with the architectural fit out project. And I remember walking into the space during the commissioning of all of the multimedia equipment and content. And I was, I was blown away by like just the quality of the exhibit content. I mean, there's numerous direct view LED walls that just, they looked amazing. You know, they're super high definition, amazing contrast, this beautiful video of, of plants and architecture. And there was corresponding exhibit audio. It was like pretty rich and engaging. And you know, for me, it transformed what was this construction site for so many months into this immersive theatrical experience that it is today. And so, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. And so big shout out to the exhibit design team for their great work. That's awesome. So I just have maybe a technical question for you, a little bit technical. How does a space vary based on the occupancy? So for instance, like if there's just a couple of people in the space talking versus a couple hundred people, like that variability, is that something that you have to take into account from an acoustical engineering standpoint? It's certainly understood that there's going to be variability 
you know, from a technical design standpoint, you're often designing for the worst case scenario, you know, so the mechanical system is designed to accommodate up to, you know, some number of people and some number of exhibits. It's kind of the same thing with the acoustic design and making sure you have enough sound absorption for a crowd full of people. And really, if you want to get real technical, there's some tipping point that you don't want to hit where, you know, people are talking, conversing comfortably, and it, the room is not reinforcing the sound so much that they have to raise their voice. Because once you hit a point where people have to start raising their voice, it adds more noise to the space, and you have this vicious circle effect, and things can get very uncomfortable acoustically very quickly. So we certainly have some pretty bespoke and advanced prediction methodology for people noise, which, you know, people are not equations, right? So it's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but we certainly took occupancy into account to make sure as best as predictable that it was going to be comfortable and not hit that tipping point. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So what is like the most fascinating thing to you about this project? For me, it's the theatricality and the chameleon-like nature of the space. You know, flexibility was a big piece of it from the very beginning. And so for the acoustic and AV design, you know, we leverage some of our performing arts and venue design experience to bring that flexibility and functionality to the understory. There's over three miles of under slab wiring that's installed for these audiovisual tie line panels that are used to support both the movable multimedia exhibits, but also temporary event productions. So there's a nice efficiency there. And then the other kind of just fascinating thing is, you know, this exhibit is virtually everything's on wheels. And so it doesn't take long or many people to completely transform the space when it's needed for presentation or parties. That's super fascinating and super challenging, I'm guessing. <laughs> like you were describing earlier with the curtains that are temporary or you can move based on what the space is being used for. So can we maybe back up a little bit and talk about the sound lab and kind of how that whole process works? Because it's super fascinating. I think it warrants some time just to discuss what that process is like. So this is something that Arab has kind of coined, right? Like this is something that you guys, that it's your... Your baby, right? Yeah. The brief history is, you know, the, the Sound Lab started as a, a concert hall design tool. And it came about around the time that the 3D modeling software had gotten to a point where you could start to create impulse responses, which allow you to listen to models as opposed to just looking at the kind of numerical output of reverberation time or clarity or strength. And so that was a real game changer because now that you could listen to sound, you could compare different design options. You could compare new designs to benchmark concert halls, for example. And what became really powerful was the ability to listen to sound in 3D, just like we experience it in the real world. And so that was the real genesis of the Sound Lab was for the performing arts and designing concert halls to be as great sounding as the best concert halls in the world. I think since its initial usage, you know, or once you have a calibrated 3D listening space, you can kind of oralize anything that you can predict. And so it's become useful across across a huge range of disciplines. So we can do we can do simulations of speech privacy between office spaces and like a workplace environment. And so owners can really drill into, you know, what sort of STC rating do they need for their partition? 
or for these multi-use types of spaces where like the background noise or the NC criteria isn't obvious, we can listen to different noise levels in the sound lab and, and have the owner decide what's right. So there's really a, a broad range of use. There's kind of this custom audio programming on the back end that, that feeds sound to the array of loudspeakers in the sound lab. And so it's, it's really kind of just this sonic canvas that kind of combines the science of prediction with audio reproduction. Okay. So are you able to take like the, so like, let's say for instance, the architect is modeling a building in 3D, then are you able to take that information to come up with the framework of what the space is going to be like in the sound lab? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, historically, it was a bit of a cumbersome process where we'd have to translate, whether it was a Revit model or AutoCAD drawings, into this proprietary software that had to have you know, planar surfaces only, and then you assign acoustic properties to those surfaces. The technology has been evolving over time, and we're currently involved in some kind of leading edge research that streamlines that whole process. And you can basically take Revit models, apply acoustic properties to the surfaces as they're modeled, and then using game engine technology, get oralizations very quickly and easily and early on in the process. And for certain project types, that becomes a really powerful design tool. Yeah, that's so awesome. So as like the design team that you're bringing into the office, then are they like sitting at a computer with headphones on like we have now and moving virtually around the space? Or is there a separate room that you're in with speakers that extrapolate that? Yeah, the sound lab itself, it's a purpose-built space. And so it can accommodate somewhere between four and eight people, depending on which sound lab you're sitting in. We have them in our offices all over the world. But I think listening together with the various stakeholders or design team members or project team members is really a, a key part of it because experiencing together the same thing and being able to discuss in real time what people are hearing and, and how they're reacting I think that's one of the key pieces. So yeah, it's it's a very cool specialized space. It's totally sound isolated from the rest of the office. It uses a box-in-box construction. There's this array of loudspeakers on a sphere. So you kind of sit in the middle of those. And then the whole space is very acoustically controlled and quiet. So it's concert hall quiet mechanical system noise levels and very almost anechoic conditions so that the room sound of the sound lab doesn't influence what people are experiencing as part of the oralization or listening session. That is so cool because it's so subjective. I feel like as far as what's acceptable and what isn't, it's all the user's perception, I guess. I see that like, so acoustical engineering, but then also like for us as structural engineers, a lot of times that subjectivity comes into play with vibration, like floor vibration, which I mean, right, sound or <laughs> the floor vibration, I guess, they're, they're kind of very similar, I guess, in that regard that they're both very subjective things to perceive. Indeed. And I think some of our structural engineers at Arup have, have realized and seen the power of, of the sound lab and have actually created what's called the motion platform. And some of these circumstances where maybe the vibration performance isn't totally clear, we also have the ability to bring clients in and have them sit on this motion platform and experience different, I'm not a structural engineer, so different stiffnesses or, you know, different vibration levels. And so it's kind of part of this overall trend in the industry, right, of design for, for the user's experience and trying to 
remove all these technical barriers between designers, engineers, and owners to get to the right solution. Yeah. Well, and I think like in the past, maybe this is not the truth, but it seems like a lot of times, you know, like as structural engineers, it's like, oh, we have to make a space that's going to stand up, right? And like that's step number one, obviously. And then as far as like how the user perceives the space, like sometimes those are thought of as like superfluous or like maybe not as important. But if you think of it from an owner's perspective, if they're leasing out the space, like if people walk in and they don't know why they're leaving, but they don't like the space, whether it's because it feels too cold or they can't hear because it's too echoey, like that has direct impacts to profits to, you know, user traffic through the space. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think our perception of space can be subconscious, Mm -hmm. right? And so to your point, people especially people who aren't design professionals might not be able to articulate, maybe not even understand what they do or do not like about a space. And so, yeah, it's all important. We experience spaces kind of with all our whole five senses sometimes. And so, yeah, I guess we in the acoustics world don't have to worry too much about buildings falling down. You know, that's not, that's not part of our core job. And so, yeah, much more focused on, on people's experience and creating comfortable spaces that are healthy and enjoyable to be in. And so I think that aligns well with what usually owners want. Yeah. I mean, and I think to underscore that, like, that's so important. Like user perception is important because also like if someone's at a concert or something like, or if an artist is going to be performing, they want to make sure that their acoustics are going to sound good and that they're going to sound good. Right. So like that becomes super important at that point too. Yeah. There's almost a Darwinian aspect to venues over, you know, the last 200 years where the oldest concert halls or the oldest venues tend to be some of the best sounding because the ones that don't sound good don't last very long. (laughs) Well, so from an acoustical standpoint, like there's the understory that is, you know, a very showpiece project, you know, just a great, amazing project. But also it's super important, like I'm thinking of mechanical units that are on, you know, rooftops, like to see what the sound transmission is for that so that we as structural engineers can design for that. Or like you were talking, you know, inner office sound transmission, same thing with like floor to floor sound transmission for like a multifamily building or something. So these are all like super fascinating things that seems like they would be good fits for the sound lab too, just to kind of figure out these more elementary basic acoustic things too. Yeah, I think so. What was your favorite thing on the project? Like what was your favorite thing about the understory? I think for me as as somebody who, you know, works on the project through design and construction, the favorite thing is just seeing it come to fruition. You know, so much of our work is on the front end and on paper. And so being able to walk in and experience a space is always where the fulfillment really starts to come into play. And I think I'll add to that the people that you work with along the way. You know, this is this is a team sport and it really matters who you work with and how you work with them. And so this was just a really enjoyable, committed team of professionals who did a great job and were really fun to work with along the way. Awesome. So if you could share some advice to structural engineers, because sometimes it sounds like you are maybe a little bit further down the line in the design process. So if you could share some insight or advice for structural engineers as they're designing these buildings, what would you want us to know? (laughs) 
I'm not sure this is answering your question, but I think I think of mass timber when I think about how acoustics and structural engineering come together to create a, a workable whole. And so mass timber construction, you know, is something I'm really passionate about. And it's this really interesting interdisciplinary design challenge where the structures and the fire performance and the acoustics all have to be kind of considered holistically from the beginning of the project. And so that's a really interesting place where structural engineers and acoustic engineers get to play together. Okay. So what can we do like with mass timber to have a better acoustic performance, I guess, maybe? Well, so on the topic of making buildings stand up, what's interesting about mass timber construction is you can make these buildings stand up with just the mass timber components, right? Whether it's CLT and glue lamb beams or posts or or whatever the primary structure is. But to make them work acoustically, they need additional mass and or damping on top of the base structure. And so therein lies this integrated design challenge of how do we add to the primary structure in a way that's beneficial from a structural perspective while remaining efficient and beneficial from an acoustic perspective while remaining you know, weight efficient and cost efficient. And then you got to throw fire performance in the mix too. And so each one of those disciplines has impacts on the other two. And so aligning them all so that they're working with each other as opposed to against each other is the main thing. Yeah, that makes complete sense, right? So that we're being proactive as structural engineers and what we're designing so that it has a good acoustical performance as well. Okay. So Dennis, if you could give the understory a theme song, what would it be? Interesting question. (laughs) I'm not sure I have a good answer for you, despite my musical inclinations. The only piece of music that comes to mind for me when I think of the understory is The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. If you know that piece? I don't. Is it classical? It's classical. That's right. Okay. And it's very innovative for its time. I think the connection for me is probably just, I think of plants and horticulture and the right of spring has the word spring in it. So it's probably just that literal connection. But I think there's maybe an abstract level to this too. You know, Stravinsky's composition was very avant-garde for its time. And the understory really kind of also pushes the boundaries of what it means to be an exhibit space. And the understory has like all these different layers of architecture and technology and different movements to it. You know, the exhibits being on wheels, the literal example. So I I don't know, the complexity of the project and the complexity of Stravinsky's music seem to go together to me. Yes, and level of sophistication. I always think of classical music as being sophisticated. The space feels very sophisticated as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. That's awesome. Okay, switching gears a little bit. This one is, speaking of not being sophisticated here, this is a very elementary question. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I am right-handed. Okay, okay. I mean, I work for a you know world-class engineering firm, so I'm very much a math and science person who happens to also have a passion for sound and music, but I'm definitely left-brained for sure. Okay. So I have this theory. So I'm left-handed and I think in my head that there's more left-handed engineers than right-handed or higher than the general population, maybe not more, but a higher percentage than the general population. But it is getting proven wrong, actually. I was going to say, I could take an informal poll for you. Yes. Yes. So anyway, I might just have to throw out my results because they're not what I want them to be. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Dennis, what do you do to recharge? 
Well, I certainly love my job and I love working, you know, at the intersection of sound, technology and the built environment. But I, I think I enjoy experiencing it even more in the real world. So especially these kind of newer interactive and immersive gallery spaces like the understory. So I don't know if you've been to the Team Lab exhibition in Tokyo. I haven't. Or the Meow Wolf Area 51 space in Las Vegas. That one's new, right? Is that their third space, Meow Wolf's? Yeah, it's relatively new. It's the only one of theirs I've been to. Okay. But those things like really changed my perspective on what's possible, especially at the, the scale these experiences are at. And so uh, I think those are really cool and kind of inspire me to continue to push the boundaries of, of my day job. So yeah. That's awesome. So I think you know you're in the right profession when your work and your personal life and like the things that you do for fun when they intersect and kind of overlap. So that's awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, Dennis, thanks so much for being on the show today. This has been super informative. I can't wait to dive into this more too. Actually, you kind of sparked some interest into this acoustical side of things. So thanks so much for being on the show and for sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. And this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. It's been been fun, an honor, pleasure, and I love what you're doing. So keep doing it. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender.